All right. Well, good morning. Uh, this morning we are uh, looking at our fourth value statement. If you're visiting this morning or you're newer to Cornerstone, currently um, taking a break from our usual practice of preaching uh, through books of the Bible verse by verse. And we're doing a six-week study through our purpose and our values. Our purpose statement here is preaching and practicing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we've considered that, we decided that we need help with that. We need parameters. And so for the past year, we've been working and writing and rewriting uh, values for our church. We have five values that we are presenting uh, to the body. We've, we've looked at three of those uh, in our past uh, Sundays. Uh, the first is gospel centrality. The second is gospel intentionality. The third is gospel community that we looked at last week. And today we come to our fourth value, which is gospel diversity. And I want to say something about this value and this sermon as we are getting into it. We say from the very beginning that since first reading through the values in our uh, purpose statement sermon, preaching and practicing the gospel of Jesus Christ, this, this one value has gotten the most attention. Some of you uh, are very excited about it and have shared excitement around this being a value. In fact, yesterday we uh, were blessed to have a meeting um, with leaders from the church of different ministries uh, here and, and gathered with some of them, and um, is a joy. And to hear the feedback and the input on it is, is exciting. Uh, but we also realize that not all of the uh, feedback that we have gotten has been applause or positive. Um, and so we know that there are some who have spoken concerns either to us or to others. And I want to say from the very beginning, I'm not scared about those concerns. It's okay for you to have those concerns or questions. I'm sincerely confident, and I'll, I'll add the elders are confident enough in what the Bible teaches us about what God's character is like and what His desire for the church is that we don't need to be afraid. We can have confidence in who He is, that when rightly understood, this value will make Cornerstone better represent the church of God in its beauty and holiness. However, I do want to be clear and helpful, and I hope so much to help alleviate some of the concerns and answer the questions that have been brought to us. And before I read the value and we look at it together, I want to say something about myself. I have biases. I am biased, and I hate it. I hate that about myself sometimes when I see it. When light is shown on the biases in my own heart, I hate it. And I want so much to love the way that Christ loves and also the way that He commands me to love. And so often I don't. I can become comfortable with or even unconsciously preferring people who are like me, my demographic, my kinds of people, and then living as if me is the standard of norm, like I represent the average person. 
And so I confess to you, I need this value, and I'm confident that we all need this value. Our values are gospel values. I've said this earlier in previous weeks, but we're not, we're not just adding the word gospel at the beginning of every other one of the words because it's trendy. We believe the gospel affects and changes the way we look at things and the way that we live. We believe that. The gospel affects our thinking about community, about the way that we function together, the way that we live together. It's the lens. The gospel is the lens through which we view life and church, the way we view ourselves, the way we view others, the way we view the world, the way we view God. And so our values are defined by the gospel, and they're examples of God's character, His nature. What is God like? And therefore, what should we seek to be like as individuals who are part of His church? And so let's look at the value. It's going to be on the screen. It's in the bulletin if you want to flip to the back of your bulletin and read it there. But gospel diversity is this. Revelation 7-9 tells us that God is saving people from every tribe, tongue, and people group. Therefore, the gospel of Christ, of Jesus Christ, is truly good news for every person on earth. Knowing that God has sovereignly built Cornerstone in the community of Westerville, Ohio, our desire is that we would grow to reflect the racial, ethnic, socioeconomic, and generational diversity of our city. We therefore commit to actively pursuing, engaging, and welcoming all people with the hope that our church body would reflect the beauty of this diversity. The text we're going to look at to begin with is Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. So go ahead and turn there, and as you get there, stand and follow along as I read. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. Ephesians 3, beginning with verse 8. To me... Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places." This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are desperate for you. In every single area of our life, that is true. We're desperate for you as a church. We're desperate for you to help us to be like you. We desire that, Lord. And so I ask you to help us this morning as we look at your word, as we discuss these things, Lord, help us to have hearts that are bent toward you. That you'd help us to love the way that you love. And that you'd be glorified through us in our response to your word, in our response to each other, 
And as we go forward together, we pray in Christ's name and for your glory. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Well, what is happening here in this text? Paul, beginning in verse 8, is boasting in the greatness of the gospel and what it does. He's saying, even though I'm nothing, I'm nobody, more specifically, the very least of all the saints, I have this incredible privilege of taking the gospel to the Gentiles, to preach to Gentiles, to welcome Gentiles, even though I'm nothing. That's verse 8. But look at the significance of it in the following verses. There's significance to this truth that Christ is gathering and saving a people from all kinds of peoples. Every single kind of people will be a part of the church. Verses 9 and 10. To bring to light for everyone... What is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things? So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So Paul says he gets to preach to those who are not like the Jews. But also this, I get to bring to light for everyone what's the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Now let's pause there. Prior to Jesus coming to the earth, even though God had made known his heart for the poor, for the foreigner, for the marginalized, for everyone, there was an exclusiveness in its practice. The Jews despised the Gentiles, anyone who was not a Jew. They ostracized and took advantage of the poor. But that was not the aim of God's plan. That was not the plan. But now, because of the gospel, Paul says that God's plan, which had been hidden up to that point, is now being brought to light. It's now being made visible. And what is that? Verse 10, that through the church, that's us, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, this is literally incredible. The angels are looking in to see how wise and good God is at what he has done in and through the church. That word manifold means literally to take various forms of many different kinds. That his wisdom has many facets like a perfect diamond. Now, he says, in this age, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places in contrast with the time before Christ came to the earth. Now, what is that? And maybe you're thinking, what in the world does this have to do with gospel diversity? Well, the context tells us it has a lot to do with gospel diversity. Look at verse 6 in chapter 3. This mystery 
is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Members of the same body, and angels are amazed at that. Look before that in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning with verse 14. For he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in him. You also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What is it that should display to the church or to the world? What is it that should display to the world that the wall of hostility between men has been broken down? And the answer, according to Paul, is the local church. The church, not just to angels, but to the world, should, should display God's wisdom in this, that there's no more wall. We've been brought together through Christ, and we ought to display that, that kind of love. John Piper says this concerning gospel diversity. God gets greater glory, and we get greater joy from seeing a multiplicity of peoples one to worship. Commenting on this text, Ephesians 3, 8 through 11, Mark Dever and Jamie Dunlop write this. What is it about unity in God's family that makes even the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places take notice? It is the degree of separation between them before Christ. A separation that Paul in Ephesians 2.14 calls a dividing wall of hostility. It's not simply that these two groups were of different ethnicity, though they were, or that they were culturally distinct, though they were, or that, the, that for theological reasons they were kept apart, though they were. It is that all of this separation was openly hostile. But what we see in the angels' response to this is this, gospel diversity is a grand witness to the truth of the gospel. Diversity in the local church demonstrates, shows to the world that the gospel is true and powerful. Dever and Dunlop go further. Far from nice to have, diversity should be one of the most obviously supernatural characteristics of a local church. The visible bond of our unity shows off the power of an invisible God, and they list off categories of this diversity, which include boundaries of age, boundaries of economics, boundaries of cultural background. And those are the areas we see and pray for gospel diversity here at Cornerstone. 
We know from Scripture what the church will look like in the kingdom of God. We see that in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 10. It says this, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And I know to that in Revelation, we would all say, what a great day that will be. Come, Lord Jesus. But the reality is that he's doing that now. In Ephesians, Paul is saying right now he's doing that. Ephesians speaks specifically of racial and ethnic diversity in the church, which we desire. But that's not all that we value or see in scriptures. The, our value statement says, knowing that God has sovereignly built Cornerstone in the community of Westerville, Ohio, our desire is that we would grow to reflect the racial, ethnic, socioeconomic, and, general, and generational diversity of our city. And we see in Scriptures socioeconomic and generational diversity in the church. In fact, James chapter 2 speaks to socioeconomic diversity in the local church, beginning with verse 1. My brothers... Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality... You're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Now, one of the things we ought to see from James' letter is this happens. He's writing that because they were doing that. This happens. They were not pursuing God's heart and design for the local church. We see generational diversity in the Scriptures. In, in Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. There's diversity in generation. We believe the Bible is clear that this is God's nature 
and design, that we are called as the church to reflect this nature, this characteristic of God and His heart for all people. You think about when a wealthy lawyer asks Jesus who his neighbor is in response to Jesus saying that the greatest commandments are love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. Jesus' answer is telling him a story about a Samaritan who got his hands dirty caring for a Jewish man in need, two people who apart from the gospel would be divided by the wall of hostility that Paul wrote about to the Ephesians. This is who God is and what He calls us to be like. It's how He defines loving your neighbor as yourself. Throughout the Old Testament, He showed how Jews were to welcome the foreigner and care for the least among them. We believe that God would desire our body to reflect the diversity of the area He's put us in, no matter where that might be. We worship in Westerville. There are certainly towns throughout Ohio or beyond where demographics would differ from Westerville. Some have much more diversity, some less diversity, and we desire to reflect the diversity of our city. Whatever our presumptions are here, we can all grow in this. I'd love to ask you and get to participate this morning I want to ask you, how many of you, raise your hand, okay, how many of you arrived to church this morning in a car, whether you drove yourself or you rode with a friend or family member, okay? That's good. How many of you came on a bus? Nobody, okay. I assumed, but but here's reality of where we meet. Within a block and a half of this building, there are two bus stops, Why? Because a part of the demographic of where we meet is that there are people, even if it's a small percentage, who have to bus places because they can't afford a car. It's it's true that in Westerville, Ohio, the median income is $86,000 a year. But it's also true that 7% of Westerville residents live below the poverty line. That's 2,500 people. And it's a good reminder that to love as a body means being willing and able to love well all those who come through our doors, all of those who are near us. I want to share something with you. We had some feedback from last week's sermon, which I love. I mentioned about uh, last week in, in gospel community about how we need to grow in hospitality ministry specifically welcoming those who come. And we got feedback. One couple responded to that saying, we think you guys are doing great. We felt very loved. Another couple responded to the same statement saying, yeah, we totally agree with Tony. We felt like we had to push in, except for one person, which was Chris Rule, who we can all just agree is in the top 10 most hospitable people on the planet, okay? (laughs) is amazing. But outside of that, and I think that highlights the fact that we desperately need 
gospel diversity to be of value. We need it. Otherwise, there will be demographics that we, even unintentionally, ignore or overlook or even more likely just not know how to love, and that's important because there are demographics of people we are either aren't drawn to, struggle connecting with, feel awkward around, or don't even notice are there, and each of you probably have a different category. We need this. So I want to spend some time addressing some of the concerns that have been brought to us. Five concerns that that have been brought to us that I want to respond to. The first one is this. We've heard from some, as it relates to this, just preach the gospel. And my first response to that would be, I am. I believe with all of my heart that this value is very much a part of preaching the gospel. Listen, I love the gospel. And I love that people love the gospel. I want you to care about the gospel. But as we've discussed throughout this series, the gospel has implications. The gospel is good news, and that good news does something. It has implications for our lives. You cannot read the gospel accounts without seeing that. You can't read the rest of the New Testament or the Bible without seeing that. The gospel impacts the way that we live. It's what we talked about in, in, in discussing our purpose, preaching and practicing the gospel of Jesus Christ, because it impacts the way we live, or it should impact the way we live. You consider the gospels and Jesus. Jesus came preaching the kingdom, and He lived in light of the kingdom, and then instructed His disciples, His followers, to do the same. I want us to process this. That response, just preach the gospel, has only been given about this one value, just this one. And it doesn't take us or shouldn't take us thinking very deeply to pause and ask, why? All five of our values are responses to the gospel. How the gospel affects or addresses the way we live, all five of them are that. But only this one has caused people to say, just preach the gospel. In 1 Peter 1.16, we are reminded, be holy, for I am holy. Be set apart from the world, from culture, and that set-apartness as the church is defined by God's holiness, by God's set-apartness, what He is like. In other words, be set apart, live differently. D.A. Carson says this, one of the most urgently needed things today is a careful treatment of how the gospel, biblically and richly understood, ought to shape everything we do in the local church, all of our ethics, all of our priorities. Tim Keller writes this, the gospel leads us to be humble, free from moral superiority, because we know 
We were spiritually bankrupt, yet saved by Christ's free generosity. It leads us to be gracious, not worried too much about people getting what they deserve, because we are aware that none of us deserve the grace of Christ. It also inclines us to be respectful of poor Christian believers as our brothers and sisters in Christ, people from whom we can learn. Remember Jesus confronting the Pharisees in Matthew 23, verse 23? He tells them that in all of their work to understand the Lord, they miss the element of justice. He says this, you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These things should have been done without neglecting the others. R.T. France says this concerning that text. There's no suggestion that the scribes and Pharisees were opposed in principle to justice, mercy, and faithfulness. The problem was that they did not devote the same care to working out the practical implications of these basic principles as they did the minutiae of tithing herbs. Guys, I want to confess here my own blind spots. I used to use this text to defend tithing and didn't even see justice issues in it. I know that I still have blind spots, and I urge you to consider yours as well. The gospel has implications. It does something, and one of those is that just as Paul writes to Ephesus, dividing walls are broken down. And we ought to display, even to angels, the manifold wisdom of God in our diversity. The second thing that we've heard, why does it need to be a separate value? Isn't it something we could teach under another value? As I've tried to explain earlier, this value has to do with the nature of who God is, of what He's like, and what His grace accomplishes in the church. We believe the Bible is clear on that. And because of that, we value it. Because God values it, we value it. It's something we value because it's what God values. Without it being its own value, the reality is we neglect it. Third, why would we pursue diversity instead of just seeing what God determines sovereignly, letting Him decide who comes? Well, first of all, we certainly don't think that God is not deciding who comes because we pursue certain things. But this question and the answer to it goes hand in hand with just preach the gospel because there are things that are true of both, but, but there are also things to add here. First of all, consider again Revelation 7, 9, and 10. I'll read it again. After this I looked. Behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 
This is what the kingdom of God will look like, and it's beautiful. But with that, we also have to remember what Jesus said when He taught us to pray, which includes this. Our Father which, is in, which art in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Holy is Your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus says, pray that. Pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He told us to pray that the realities of His will and kingdom would be done now, and we know what His kingdom will look like. We know what it is like. Now, those things will be fully realized in eternity, but we, we should pray for and pursue them now. Think about this practically for a second. We would never be satisfied if, this, if the congregation here was all one demographic. If a congregation was all women, or all men for that matter, it wouldn't be healthy. And we would pursue growth in another demographic. If a congregation was all 75 years and older, there, wouldn't be intention, there, there would be intentionality in inviting and pursuing younger people, and often that is the case with churches who are made up only of that demographic. If a congregation was all under 25, that's not the best picture of Christ's body. In fact, Titus 2 teaches us that. It tells us that there should be older and younger and that there should be gender diversity, men and women. On that last point, we have a history here. In 2007, we were a very young church. We planted in 2005, very young, and we pursued Pete and Karen Hewling because they aren't very young at all. <laughs> Pete will tell you you, can, you can ask him. He and I met several times before they ended up coming to Cornerstone because they fell out of place. But we needed them as the body to represent Christ's church and to fulfill what He's called us to be. And we needed more of them. You've displayed this as a body. One thing we've heard consistently from our life group leaders is a longing for generational diversity from those who don't have it in their group, or thankfulness for those groups that have had it, and a pursuit of it. When John Piper was asked by someone how to find a good church, he said this, a membership should be born again. How do you recognize people who are born again? John says they love other believers. Do you smell any kind of exclusiveness that pushes away believers of different races, believers of different economic levels, believers of different education? Do you smell a kind of exclusionary attitude that's foreign to born-again love? And his encouragement is this, if you do, don't go there. 
And so I would ask, have we as a church developed a culture of doing things or acting in a way or not acting in a way that creates stumbling blocks for certain demographics? That doesn't mean we can please everyone, but do certain people come and say, this place isn't for me because they're exclusive, whether we know it or believe it or not? I'll give you an example. As a man, I'm confident in who I am, which is a man. I am male. God created me in that demographic, but that doesn't mean I think that being a man is normal, but being a woman is different, so women should adapt to fit into a male-centric world. That would be ridiculous, and I'm certain none of you would say or believe that. But consider, we can't think of that about any other one of our preferences or things we attach to our demographic and not other demographics. Do I think that my style of worship is the way to worship the Lord or even the best way? That my musical preference is the standard of norm so it's reasonable that others just adapt to it? Do I believe that my way of doing school is the way of doing school? That if others truly saw things the right way, that they would educate the way I do also? As a church, we are blessed to host classical conversation here, which is a homeschool group. We also open our doors to Longfellow Elementary to hold a program here each year. Do I believe that my family structure is the norm for family structure, whether I'm single, I have one child, many children, or whatever it is? Do I see it as norm and what others should adapt to? Those are things that we can attach to a demographic that can be stumbling blocks We have to flee and renounce these ways of thinking. We have to, and we must learn to embrace others whether they fit neatly in our demographic or not. One more thing on this. Acts 1.8, as Jesus is sending out His disciples to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Consider that, to the ends of the earth. We live now where that dividing wall of hostility broken down in Christ for us could mean not flying around the globe, but going down the street. We were 400 years ago the end of the earth, but now God brings the ends of the earth to our doorstep. We ought to pursue that We ought to respond to that. Fourth, the word diversity has bad connotations in our culture. That may be. But isn't that true of other words we embrace in the church with gospel implications? Like love? Certainly we would agree that the word love has cultural meanings that conflict with the truth of the gospel. Or marriage. My goodness, the word marriage in our culture is under debate and scrutiny. It's been hijacked, but we don't question whether we should use that word or not. Let me, let me say something to this. Culturally, women were discredited 
and considered less than others in the days when Jesus walked the earth. The terms that were associated with women had cultural definitions and relevance and connotations, and none of them were good. And this absolutely includes among the religious and likely the disciples as well. However, Jesus purposefully pursued them and called them to himself and made them a part of his gathering, even going first to a woman after his resurrection. Culture and its definitions should never ever dictate the church's representation of Christ's heart for the least or marginalized. And if we think, well, that was 2,000 years ago, the church has changed and we've come so far, women have been allowed to vote in the United States for a hundred years. A hundred years. And you'll be hard-pressed to find Christian writings before that denouncing the inequality. Fifth, comment that has come to us in this, this opens the door specifically using the word diversity, for liberal theology. And I would ask you, how? Our value here is gospel diversity. What the gospel speaks to us about diversity. Revelation 7-9 tells us that God is saving people from every tribe, tongue, and people group. Therefore, the gospel of Jesus Christ is truly Good news for every person on earth. Knowing that God has sovereignly built Cornerstone in the community of Westerville, Ohio, our desire is that we would grow to reflect the racial, ethnic, socioeconomic, and generational diversity of our city. We therefore commit to actively pursuing, engaging, and welcoming all people with the hope that our church body would reflect the beauty of this diversity. So that's our value statement on this. But we have other statements as well as a church. Our statement of faith that you can find on the website under about includes these two statements on marriage. We believe that God created marriage in the Garden of Eden. It is a purposeful union between one man and one woman that exists for God's glory as a picture of the covenant between Christ and His bride, the church. We believe that God intends sexual intimacy to occur only between a man and a woman who are married to each other. We believe that God has commanded that no intimate sexual activity be engaged in outside of a marriage between a man and a woman, and also the sanctity of human life. We believe that all human life is sacred and created by God in His image. Human life is of inestimable, estimable, goodness. Can I have a volunteer? Human life is of inestimable worth and in all its dimensions, including Preborn babies, the aged, the physically or mentally challenged, and every other stage or condition from conception through natural death. We are therefore called to defend, protect, and value all human life. But tell you from the heart of the elders, we aren't changing our doctrine in any way. We believe and teach what the Bible says to the very best of our ability and understanding. And our values are the ways in which we commit to practice our doctrine as a church. And so what do we believe the future state looks like as it relates to this value? Two things. People who are dying to self and can say more than, I love you, but 
I am learning how to love you. If we could grow in that heart as a people, to be able to say of other demographics, not just I love you, but I am seeking to learn how to love you. And it looks like this, training the body to grow in what it means to love people from different demographics. We're going to move into a time where we take the Lord's Supper together. The dividing wall of hostility between man and God and between man and man is broken down because of Christ. He did what we could not do on our own. And we remember His work on the cross each week here. His body was broken and His blood shed. And so let's remember and pray His grace and pray for His displays of love through us together. He has accomplished all that we need. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your goodness. We thank You, Lord, for Your grace. You're far more gracious than we are. Even as we try to flesh that out and have values that reflect You, You're so much more than we can ever represent. You're far greater than we give You worship for. You're far more loving than we are loving. We pray that You'd help us to be a people who respond to who You are and who delight in all of the facets of Your wisdom and beauty. And we pray that we would be a church that best displays that the gospel is true and the gospel is powerful. And we pray that you would be honored and you would be glorified. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.